Exodus chapter 7 is where we are this afternoon or this morning, still this morning, just barely. Exodus chapter 7. We're going to look at chapter 7, verse 14, all the way through chapter 9, verse 12, which is a lot. So fasten your seatbelts, because I only have a few minutes to do this. No time for that coffee. I need it so I can speak faster. Okay, so we are going to look at, as I said, 714 through 912, but I want to actually start by reading chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, then I'll pray and we'll get into it together. This is God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Father, we pray that we would learn to fear you, not be afraid, but to fear you. That, Lord, we would recognize you as God Almighty and see, Lord, how good you are, to see how unique you are. Lord, that we would be delivered from the temptation to exalt any other thing that we deem powerful. And that, Lord, we would exalt you set you aside in our hearts as holy. Please, Lord, we pray you meet us here as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, everyone who agrees says, amen. So one of the things I love about the scripture is how honest a picture it paints of how, of these kind of what we might call twin evils of sin and suffering. It doesn't mince words. The Bible doesn't kind of try to sugarcoat things. It's just very direct about how difficult life can be, about how serious sin is, about the suffering that we experience. The scripture is really clear about this. And where we are in Exodus is, is Israel still in this point where it's experiencing suffering, serious suffering, 400 years of suffering at the hand of the Egyptians. They're oppressing them. And of course, we've seen so far where God's already beginning to send, uh, to send Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. And we're just beginning now these, these, these what are called plagues, these 10 plagues, which are actually really judgments. Each of them is judgments. There's only some of them that are plagues, but they're all judgments. And, and what we're going to see as we get through these things is that there, there's some recognizable patterns that actually the first nine come in patterns of three. And we're going to look at the first two sections of three today. But these patterns are meant to tell us something. And in fact, uh, all the plagues are meant to tell us something, not so much about the Egyptians, but they're meant to tell something about God. This is what God says. This is what we just read in chapter nine. That God wants to, to do this. He's going to deliver his people this way because he's going to reveal to them and to the Egyptians that there indeed is no one like him. There's no one like him. 
And so we're going to go through these fairly quickly. And, and, and I, I want to kind of just make two points from each of the th first three blocks of, of judgments. And the first one is this. I want us to see that God mercifully exposes the limits of human power. It's merciful that he does this. And I hope you guys see it. So verse 14, starting in chapter 7. The Lord said, uh, sorry, verse 14. The Lord, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile and meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to, into blood. And the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch it out, stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants and lifted up his staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. Now remember, the Egyptians were guilty of shedding blood. Not just in war, but of the Hebrew children. And so there's something apt here. The Nile was to them something they worshipped as the source of all life. Understandably so in one sense. Because without the Nile, there would be no Egypt. It wouldn't exist. It wouldn't have had its power. It wouldn't have its agriculture. It wouldn't have its, any of its money, its wealth. And if you remember back in Exodus chapter 5, the Hebrews, when Moses went to, to, to go before Pharaoh, Moses didn't go before Pharaoh and it doesn't go so well. And so Pharaoh says, no, 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 I'm not going to let my, your people go. I'm going to make it harder for them. And of course, the Hebrews are all frustrated. And they said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And I love the irony here. Because here God's doing something. He's saying, okay, I'm going to make the Nile that you worship to outstink the Israelites that you despise. This is what I'm going to do. And God does this. Now, as he does this, here's what we read in verse 22. It says, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into the house, and he did not even take, note, take this to heart. And it says in verse 24, And all the Egyptians dug along the river or along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Now there's stuff here that's really important. One we see here that, that when the magicians imitate, when they're able to do by some sort of sleight of hand or some sort of demonic magic, they're able to kind of repeat turning water into blood. Notice they don't remove the blood from the water. They just make matters worse. We'll talk more about that in a minute. 
But also what it is, is this is not so much a removal of any kind of judgment. They're not overcoming the judgment of God, but what they're doing is providing an excuse for Pharaoh's unbelief. And so Pharaoh so, is so unbelieving at this, he's just kind of like, whatever, he doesn't even take it to heart. So what? But I also want you to notice that, that it says that the Egyptians had to dig around the river. So the idea is, that you've probably seen this happen where you might have watched nature shows where this takes place, where if you dig, if a, a, a water source is a bit polluted, you can come away about a meter or so, dig down, and what's happening is the soil is actually filtering that water. So the water that comes up is the water that you can actually drink. And so what's really important to see with this is that God wasn't trying to destroy their source of water. He was just trying to make them thirsty. That was the point of this judgment. The point of this first judgment was not to say, let's wipe out the Egyptians. We, we read earlier, right, in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, that he could have done that if he wanted to, but that wasn't the point. The point was to make them thirsty, to think about this God of the Hebrews. So we get to the second plague. Verse 25 of chapter 7. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. You get a sense there that God's giving Pharaoh a chance to repent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all the, your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed, and into the house of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with the staff over the rivers and over the canals and over the pools and make the frogs come up on the land. So Aaron outstretched his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. What a weird thing. Now there are some who want to say this is just kind of a naturalistic Events: The water gets turned to blood or it's polluted somehow. And then what happens? The frogs try to leave the water. Now the issue though is, is that, is that it, it, God could use natural means, obviously, but this is more exaggerated. Because even when frogs, if frogs are going to leave the water, there's not going to be so many frogs that they're going to kind of cover your kitchen and bedroom. So why frogs? Well, interesting thing about frogs is that the Egyptians actually worshipped a a female goddess of fertility that had the head of a frog. They saw these things as prolific as they were. Also, the Egyptians looked at frogs and they, 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 they watched how they could live in two worlds, land and water. And, and they, they, were, they were blown away by this. They were impressed by this. They thought, okay, their desire as Egyptians was to live in this life and the afterlife. They want to be able to live in both lives at the same time if possible. And so they, they made observations about frogs and turned those observations into Worship. In other words, listen, these creatures that they worshipped, these creatures that they could observe, they began to worship, and these that they began to worship became the unwelcome guests in their home. This is what happens. Now look at verse 7. It says, Then, then the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made uh, frogs come up to the land of Egypt. Again, we don't know how they did this. Did they learn frog calling or something? Or was again, was this just demonic? Who knows? But they're able to do this. But what happens? Verse 8 says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Interesting. This is the same Lord that, Moses, or that uh, Pharaoh had said originally, Who's the Lord? 
What Lord? Why should I obey him? And I was going, okay, okay, the Lord, you're, you're God, plead with him. Because again, what, what could the magicians do? They could mimic, they could add to the judgment, but they couldn't take it away. They could only make the problem worse. Now, this is important because what's happening here is, is that God, again, is wanting to show that there's something unique about him. That, that, that he, as the God of the Hebrews, is different than any of the gods the, the Egyptians would want to worship. And we're going to see this now and how the specifics of the deliverance come. Look at verse 9. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants for your, uh, and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off and your houses may be, uh, and from your houses, and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be, be it as, as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Okay, Pharaoh, you name the day. Now, why didn't Pharaoh say now? I don't know. But he says, you name the day. So Pharaoh names the day tomorrow. And Moses is fine. Now you're going to see this is God who does it. Verse 11. The frog shall go away and you from you and your houses and your servants and your people, they shall be left only in the Nile. Do you see what's happening here? Not only does Pharaoh get to choose a time, which is going to be an indication of, of God's ability to do whatever needs to be done, but the frogs are going to go to the place they belong. They're not going to just all die. A bunch are going to die, but a bunch are going to return to the Nile where they belong. Look at verse 12. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and, and Moses cried to the Lord about the, the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And notice verse 13. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died in the houses and the courtyards and the fields. So what happens? God answers according to Moses' words. This is a way that God is showing his uniqueness. Now don't, don't, don't miss this because this happens throughout the Exodus. Specifically th th throughout these plagues. Where God's making it clear, I'm going to do exactly what Moses says. Not because God's obeying Moses. Moses is obeying God. But he's, God's wanting to show both the Egyptians and the Israelites that I always have my word revealed. I make sure what you need to know is known. That what I say through my servant is what I operate according to. Now, God's not limited by the scripture. Okay? God's not limited by that. But God doesn't ever go beyond what the scripture commands. In other words, God doesn't ever counter what the Bible says. That's kind of the, the, the takeaway here. God's trying to show something unique about him as the God who speaks through his prophets. Keep going, verse 14. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. You see, here's what God's doing. He's laying out these specifics including the fact that Pharaoh's not going to listen to all this evidence. Why? To show there's something unique about him. This is how God does it. See, see, here's the thing you have to understand. And all these killing of these cute little frogs, okay, this is not God devaluing his creation. This is God exposing their creature worship. And, and, and there's a there can be a fine line between this two. We have a creation mandate in the beginning of Genesis to take care of this planet. We have a creation mandate. But sometimes that creation mandate, we cross the line where it gets into creation worship. 
Our, our future is tied up, we say, in this planet being just as what it's meant to be. No, our future is tied up in the God who made it. Should we be good stewards? Absolutely we should. One of the reasons we have teacups. Hint, hint. But the reality is, God wants to expose when we go beyond valuing creation and we begin to worship it. That's the purpose of the judgment. Third judgment, starting verse 16 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so it may become gnat, says in, in the uh, ESV. You might have a different name or a different insect named. Now it become gnats in the, all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now the word for gnats is actually a generic word for a number of different insects. And so this could be not just one kind of insect, but a, a number of different kinds of insects. In fact, this is why I've kind of described it as dust becoming insects, because I don't think that the, the judgment here is about a specific uh, type of insect, but about the sheer volume of insects that were invading everywhere. Bugs are important. Bugs are a good thing. No matter how scared you are of spiders, they're still a good thing. Bugs are a good thing. But when they overrun, they're not so much of a good thing. But here's what happens. Look at verse 18. It says that the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the insects, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magician said to, to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. Now, why, what's the point of this judgment? Now, I hope you guys noticed that there wasn't a warning about this judgment. That's going to be important when we get to the second set of three, okay? But I also want you to notice something about this as well. These magicians aren't named in the Old Testament, but the Jews had, the Hebrews had a tradition that they knew the names of them. And you might recognize these names as I read them from the New Testament. Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these false teachers, Paul's talking about, also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he's saying, hey, in the same way these magicians, and he names them, Janus and Jambres, in the same way these magicians res resisted the truth that God was trying to reveal to Egypt through Moses and Aaron, so these false teachers resist the truth of the gospel in our day. This is important because it's important for us to recognize at this point with these first, this first set of three judgments, this judgment is not about God saying, I reject the Egyptians. It's about God saying, you reject the truth. It's you that rejects the truth. Again, what did we read in the very beginning in chapter 9? God says, if I wanted to wipe you out one blow, I could have wiped you out. But I didn't because I want you to know who I am. Can you see why we're saying that this is God's merciful exposure of the limits of human power. Can you see why it's that way? Now, now we've been through a lot as a church. Some of you guys are going through stuff that we probably don't even know about yet. And, and it's, it can be so frustrating when you're in a situation that you feel helpless. Like you feel like, I, I want to fix this, but I don't know how to fix this. And you just, you feel utterly helpless. It's a horrible feeling to feel that way. But guess what? God allows us to be in those situations. I'm not saying he's the cause always, but he allows us to be in those situations for this reason, to show himself to be the ever-present help in time of need. 
That's why he does it. It's mercy. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. This is definitely God in, in, in these judgments. He is judging Egypt. And we'll see this as we go along. But just know that this is the thing that we need to, to recognize. If someone's called you out about something that you believe that is false about God, hopefully they weren't rude. Hopefully they were caring and hopefully they were the, you had the kind of relationship with them that they, you could respect their opinion enough to receive it from them. I hope that's the case. But if they have done that to you, thank God for his mercy. I think about so many things as a pastor that I've taught over the years that I realize later on, ooh, that was actually not very true. I'm so glad not everything I've ever taught is still recorded. <laughs> We're all in process. We all need to bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord and what he's revealed. So that's the first three. The second three gets a bit more intense. In, these, in the second set of three judgments, we're gonna see God powerfully proving his faithfulness to his people. It gets a bit more intense for Egypt, but it's also meant to give a bit more confidence to his people. Look at verse 20 of chapter eight. The fourth plague or the fourth judgment flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and on the ground on which they stand. But notice verse 22 but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarm of flies shall be there, and that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. Now let me just say, Bible scholars are divided about the first three uh, judgments. Some say that the Israelites didn't experience any of those judgments either. Others say no, they experienced... They were, they were experiencing the effects of those judgments as well. Either way, I'll let you kind of look into that and decide where you stand on that. But, but here's what we know for sure. In these second three, this is when God begins to say verbally, I want you to know there's a big difference. Now, now bringing flies uh, to a, a bunch of flies to an area, it's not that hard. If you have enough manure, you can bring enough flies, right? But we're not talking about just flies in a little area. We're talking about the whole land covered with flies, except in this one part of Goshen. This is what God's doing. Now, here's what he's doing. He's wanting to set apart his people. He's wanting to make it clear that his people are set apart for him. It's God who does the setting apart. And I want you to understand this. This is really important, especially when we... When we come back to the, 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 the judgments in a few weeks' time, it's going to be important for you to see that, that it's what makes you special is that God chooses, chooses you. Uh, you. You have a choice to make. Don't get me wrong. You have a choice to make. No one believes against their will, okay? But it's God who does the first choosing. It's that choosing that makes you special. It's God setting you apart that makes you special. Do you get that? Because if you don't get that, here's what you're going to do. I'm special if I fill in the blank. And now, that, that some of you guys might come from, from church backgrounds where you'd be suspicious of hearing something like that. And I understand that. The, church, the, the group of churches that I'm from, they would be a little bit worried about that. They would go, it smells like Calvinism. And they would be allergic to Calvinism. 
But you know, this is just Bible. This is just what the scripture teaches. And this is what actually sets us free. Because here's the deal. <laughs> when these, these Israelites are there in Goshen, which originally was just a great place to be, right? It was given to them as a reward to Joseph 400 years previously. And it had become a place where they kind of go home after an 18-hour day to collapse in exhaustion, just to, probably hoping and praying they would die that night so they'd have to go back and be a slave the next day. And they're seeing all these things happening, and they're wondering, okay, Moses and Aaron say, this is the God of our fathers, but can we trust this God? Especially, listen, if they went through any of the results of the first three judgments. And now God's saying, I want to make this so clear to you and to my people that these are my people. I'm not setting them apart because they have great faith. I'm not setting them apart because they've been so faithful. I'm setting them apart because they're mine. And because they're mine, I'm going to give them the faith they need. I'm going to grow their faith. And they're going to choose me and they're going to follow me. Now, Verse 25 says, Then Pharaoh calls to Moses and Aaron, and he says, Go sacrifice to your God, but within the land. He's putting a limit on it. But Moses said, It would not be right for us to do so. The offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. There's some interesting stuff we could say about this, but we don't have time. But, he, but here's what we do see happening, right? Pharaoh wants to negotiate, not submit. Does that sound familiar? Let's be honest. How many of us have tried to negotiate with God instead of just saying, God, not my will, but yours be done? Aren't you glad that your righteousness is based on Jesus who said, not my will, but yours be done, and not ours? Because we do like Pharaoh, we try to negotiate. We're going to talk more about that next time. Verse 28, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me, he says. Then Moses said, behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from uh, his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let his people go. One of the things that I hope we can see in this is that the deception of Pharaoh in fact, that's what it, what it says, don't cheat again. The idea is don't deceive again. That's really what the Hebrew word means. The deception of Pharaoh is not a threat to God's plan. It's a threat to God's people in the sense of their experience. I don't, I don't want to act like that we're somehow protected from all harm as believers. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. But it's not a threat to God's plan. God knows those that are his. This is exactly what the scripture says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. But the truth of God stands like a firm foundation stone with this inscription, the Lord knows those that are his. This is such good news, man. What's the foundation of your faith? How well you know God? 
how great your faith is? No. God knowing you. He knows you. He knows you. He knows you. See, this judgment is to prove God's commitment to those who belong to him. That's the point of the swarm of flies. Fifth judgment, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And the Lord said to Pharaoh, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. He said that once, he said that a couple times before. I want to come back to that. <laughs> he says, let my people go and they, that they may serve me. And if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hem of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on your livestock that are in the fields, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. So here's where things begin to get a bit more intense. I mean, the flies are bad, but again, they're more of an annoyance. And it's as if God's saying, okay, no more just annoyance. This is when there's going to be a consequence. This is when there's going to be a financial disaster. Now, the temptation as we hear this, even as I say this, is to feel like, could that be what's happening with us now in the world? Now, God does bring judgments. God does bring chastenings. But I'm kind of slow to make those connections too quickly. Because I know when the disciples made those connections and they said to Jesus, Jesus, these men that were killed by the tower in Siloam that fell, you know, did you hear about these guys? Or these Galileans that, that had, were forced to, to make sacrifices mingled with blood? Did you hear about these guys? Jesus says, yeah, you hear these guys? Guess what? They're not greater sinners than anybody else. And unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Rather than kind of saying that was directly God's judgment, he was kind of saying, look, all of us, unless we repent, are under God's judgment. So I want to be kind of slow to kind of, oh, that person's being judged for when they're going through bad things. But just be really slow about doing that. But it doesn't mean that God isn't a God who tries to humble us when we refuse to receive the correction he brings. And here's where it gets really heavy, too. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it says, And the Lord set, set a time, saying, Tomorrow <coughs> the Lord will do <coughs> this thing in the, in the land, and the next day not one of the livestock of the people of Israel. I'm sorry, I lost the part, didn't I? Yeah. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Now remember, this is the, just the livestock in the fields. They would have other livestock that we'll see in future judgment. But here's the point. Verse 7 says, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but, what does it say? But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Uh, think about this for a second. I want you to think about this for a second. Pharaoh's already been through quite a few plagues, things that he would have had to have seen are somehow supernatural. He would have had to see this. And so then when there's this predicted plague, now, the, now it's going to be serious, man. Now you're going to really lose some serious cash. You're, all your livestock, the stuff that you have in the fields, is all going to die. But none of the Israelites' livestock is going to die. You're going to see that clear distinction. Now, if you know anything about agriculture, you know, if animals in one farm get some kind of disease, there's a good chance animals in the next farm are going to get a disease as well. That's the way it works. That's why they tend to kind of kill all those animals before the disease spreads. Yet, guess what happens? It doesn't touch the, doesn't touch the, the uh, livestock of the Israelites. And Pharaoh, listen, goes and checks this out for himself, or at least sends representatives to do so. In other words, listen, 
Pharaoh sees the evidence that God has done exactly what he said. And what does he do? He still hardens his heart. He still rejects the truth. You know what's just amazing to me about this? When I think about this, this situation happening in the Old Testament, in Exodus, with Pharaoh, it reminds me of the New Testament, not with Pharaoh, but with Pharisees. With the Pharisees, the people that are supposed to know God. Because they did a similar thing with Jesus. Jesus was doing all kinds of miracles, all kinds of works that only God could do. And with that, he was, a, he was receiving worship from people as God. He was, he was beginning to, to at least hint that he is God. John's Gospel specifically brings this up. And so you have a time where he's going to get confronted by the Pharisees. Here's what we read in John chapter 10. Once again, the people, that's religious uh, leaders specifically, picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, at my father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? Hey, I'm just doing what the father told me to do. I'm just doing these mighty signs. And they replied, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, you a mere man claiming to be God. Now, I want you to think about this and the parallel. Because here's what we learn from this judgment of the plague on the livestock. That this judgment is demonstrating God's willingness to reach out to those he knows are unwilling to believe. Think about that. Think about that. Why did, God, why did Jesus spend so much time with Pharisees? Because he wanted to reach them, even though he knew they would harden their hearts. Why did he focus on going to Israel first when most of Israel would reject him? Because he wanted them to believe, even though he knew what their response would be. This is the God we serve. The last plague we'll look at tonight, last judgment we'll look at tonight, <coughs> boils on man and beast. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them up in the air in the sight of Pharaoh and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land. Notice this is the third of the second set of three and just like the third of the first set of three, no warning. You know why? Because no warning itself is a warning. No warning is a warning. It's God's way of saying, you can't negotiate with me, you can't play games with me, you need to respond to what I'm saying to you. You don't know what's going to happen. Verse 10. So they took the soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Now, I want you to notice something. What's the means of this judgment? It's the very place where Israel was being oppressed, the brick kilns. They were slaves made to make bricks. When, they, when Moses says, let my people go, they go, no, now they're going to have to gather their own straw to make bricks. The kiln represented their oppression. And so God's saying, again, in this poetic irony, God's saying, okay, <laughs> this is going to be the source of judgment. We don't want to forget this as we talk about this. 
Because when we're talking about these judgments, it, it's, it's, if we automatically apply these to ourselves and we think, okay, uh, all right, because I, I, fall a bit, I fell a bit short this week, I'm just about ready to be judged. One, we probably don't understand the gospel. And two, we're missing what God's wanting to say here. Because what God is doing in judging this nation is not saying Israel's so righteous, but th that this is the way humanity is. We are people who get God wrong, and so we oppress one another. This is what we do. We hurt each other because we get God wrong. We don't believe God is who he's revealed himself to be. We don't believe he's as powerful or as good or as sovereign or as merciful or as gracious or as faithful. We don't believe God is who he reveals himself to be. And so what do we do? We do whatever we feel like doing, including oppressing other people. This is what we do. And so God is wanting to show Egypt, God is wanting to show us through his word that, listen, if you're not going to believe who I am, then you are going to reap what you sow. Because here's the reality. Listen, this is hard to say. In fact, Sarah will tell you, I almost didn't want to teach on this today. Because we're going through such a hard time as a church, and I thought, man, do I really want to talk about plagues? And I, I need to be clear, the things that we're going through are not plagues. They're not God's judgment on us, though God will use them to drive us to our knees and to humble us. But they're not plagues. Our sin has been judged in Christ. Amen? But there's this reality that we have to get through our heads. This truth of the gospel that is this. Listen, either we reap what we sow, which always leads to death, or we reap what Christ sowed. That's your choice. Where are you going to put your faith? So what happens? Verse 11, the magicians could not even stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon, upon the magicians and even upon all, or the magicians even upon all the Egyptians. Isn't this interesting? <laughs> the first couple plagues, magicians, actually the, the, the first with the snakes, they could imitate that. They could counterfeit that. Then with uh, the first two plagues, they could counterfeit those to at least a degree. Couldn't take them away, but they could counterfeit them. Then they couldn't do it. They're like, oh, this has got to be the finger of God. We can't, we can't repeat this. Now they can't even show up. This is God showing his people, you can trust. He's powerfully showing his people, you can trust that I am faithful. That the things I promise to do, I will come to pass to do them, and I have the ability to make sure they come to pass. Verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. <laughs> now we're going to talk about this idea of God hardening his heart. So we, we keep bringing this up. It keeps coming up. And we're going to talk about this when we, when we finish the end of the plagues. Because I hope that we can start to see in Pharaoh our own hearts. But what I really want to land on is this. Because I, I believe what's going on here is God is wanting to demonstrate his commitment to punish the unrepentant. One of the things that stumbles people about God, one of the things that keeps people from putting their faith in the God of Scripture is that how can a God who's good and all good and all powerful allow suffering? If he's really all good and he's really all powerful, he should deal with suffering. 
And the Bible has a really clear answer to that. <laughs> he has and he will. You see, nobody gets away with anything. The fact that God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's interesting because what's been used so far about hardening is a word that means to make heavy. Like Pharaoh's like kind of, I don't know if you've ever, any of you guys have ever wrestled or grappled like physically. Any, anybody's ever done that. But one of the things that you can do when you're wrestling with somebody is you, you lower your center of weight and it makes it harder for someone to get you in position. You spread your legs out. You put your weight down and they can't move you. Even if they're strong, they can't move you. It's hard, or it's hard for them to move you. And so in a sense, it's like he's lowering his center of weight. He's like, no, I'm not going to submit to God. But here the word, when it says that God hardened his heart, it's a different word for harden. It's a word that means to, to, to set at grasp. It's like God's not even going to resist him now. It's like, okay, you want to hold on to that stubbornness? It's yours. Go ahead. You want to condemn yourself? Great. I said that you would, and you are. Is that not the, one of the most fearful things you ever heard? It scares me. I think the only verse that's even scarier than this is the one that, where Jesus says, he, say, he will say in that day, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the most terrifying verse in the, in the scripture. But here's the good news, that the perfect love of God shown in Christ casts out fear. It casts out the fear of judgment. Why? Because Christ took our judgment. He took our judgment. But see, here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.9. He says, listen, so you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials and even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. Some of us have been hurt by people and we think, I don't like the idea of God just forgiving them because they hurt me bad. I mean, you know what I'm saying. Some of you guys have been hurt bad enough, you know what I'm saying. But you need to know this. God doesn't just kind of lightly forgive people. He forgives us only because of what Christ has done. Forgiveness isn't unconditional. It's conditioned on the finished work of Jesus. So we can believe that this God is a God of justice. See, here's what we know. We know that God knows the suffering we're experiencing and the sinful responses that suffering that magnify it. He knows both. He knows this and we need to know that he alone is able to redeem us from both of those. Only him. See, in Exodus, God does these supernatural signs to show that when you worship the creature instead of the creator, it brings judgment. But the same God who did this will in the future, now in our past, take on human flesh. And when he does supernatural signs, he proves, listen, that he can bring life out of death. That's what he does. We can trust the God of Exodus because it's the same God, same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same God who dwelt in him who did these things. And he alone is worthy to be worshipped. We titled today, uh, God versus Pharaoh, part one. And man, I hope that we're sobered by this to, to realize, you know what? The foolish ideas we have about God or the silly things that we make into God, those things all fail and are destroyed in the presence of the God who always is. I hope you see that. And Father, I pray that you would help us to fear you enough to turn to you 
and put our faith in, in Jesus who died, who took on our judgments so that his perfect love could cast out fear. Lord, you are a God of judgment. That's why we have hope. Because in Christ, you've already judged us. Lord, may we, we see this. May we be sobered by this. And may all our fellow friends that, that look like the Egyptians, Lord, may we recognize ourselves in them and recognize your willingness to make yourself known to them. Please, Lord, we pray you do this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thanks for being patient. You can go to the beach now. See you next week.